Let's turn in the Scriptures to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. That psalm was a good introduction to this uh, passage. It's what the remnant of God's people and Isaiah are going through in which the Lord is instructing Isaiah here concerning Isaiah chapter 8, our passage is verses 11 through 18. And before we read God's Word, let's pray. Our gracious Father, we give You thanks once again for Your Word that teaches us Your ways. And not only teaches us the history of the church, which it obviously does, but also teaches us how we ought to live as well. Today, as you taught them then, and as you taught Isaiah here, we pray that you would teach us to look to you, to make you our fear, and not anyone else. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11. These are God's words. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts Himself, and let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, and a rock for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. Those are God's words. So again, the Lord has come to King Ahaz and the nation of Judah, all who have been afraid of the confederacy, the joining that is together of Syria and Israel. And the Lord has told them that both those nations, Syria and Israel, will soon be destroyed. Their kings will be removed, and therefore they are to avoid the idea of making a covenant, a league, an alliance with Assyria. And if, as if Assyria would be their deliverance from Syria and Israel. Rather, they should trust in the Lord and not seek any earthly alliance. In the passage before us this evening, there are two ways of looking at things and looking at this matter in particular, but also looking in application for ourselves at everything. How we ought to look at everything uh, in our lives. The first point Different worldviews. 
different worldviews. The people of God have and are required to have a different worldview than that of the world. And have a different outlook, a very different outlook than the world. There should be in you, if you're a child of God, a different worldview, a different outlook on life and all things compared to one who is a child of the devil or who is an unbeliever. So it is here in this passage. The prophet Isaiah is admonished to look for a different solution. And in that problem that is set before him, Judah and Israel and Syria coming against Judah and Assyria and the king Ahaz wanting to make an alliance with the king of Assyria. There's a problem. And so he's telling Isaiah to look, as he's looking at Israel and Syria coming up against Judah, he says to Isaiah and through Isaiah to the remnant, God's true people there in Judah who believe, to look for a different solution. He says, verse 11, For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, that is the people of Judah, saying, Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy, neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Now we already defined confederacy. It's used by us in our day as generally a joining together. And yet, in the Scriptures, this word here uh, can mean an alliance like Syria and Israel have an alliance. And yet is also used as an internal conspiracy. And so, because of that, some believe, and it may be reflected in, in some of your translations of the Scriptures, that Isaiah, they think, was accused of being in league with or uh, conspiring with the enemy because he was telling them not to align themselves with Assyria and not be and not to be afraid of Syria and Israel. Jeremiah was accused of the same thing, Jeremiah the prophet. But there's a different meaning in this word in the Hebrew in which the context shows here that Isaiah is actually being admonished not to approve of the planned confederacy of Judah with Assyria. The people were saying, that is the people of Judah were saying, a confederacy. We have to have a confederacy. We have to join with Assyria. That's the answer. We have to join with King Tiglath-Pileser and we will be saved. We have to have an alliance there. And Isaiah is being clearly told by Jehovah, don't you, Isaiah, don't you say a confederacy. Don't you say that. To everyone that this people says a confederacy, don't you say that. Don't you think that way. The way they think, don't think that way. We have to be ready if we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to think differently and to speak differently. That we should not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so Isaiah is here told to not think or speak the way the majority of the covenant people of Judah, although they are rebellious, the, the majority of the people thought and spoke. They thought deliverance from Israel and Syria was found in a confederacy, in a league, in an alliance with Assyria and with the king there, Tiglath-Pileser. And so the prophet is here commanded not to follow, don't even follow the thoughts, the words of the covenant people of Judah who profess to be the people of God, 
Don't follow them, for there many of them are evil. He's also, verse 12, told to have a different fear than the fear of the people of Judah and King Ahaz. He says, Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he shall be for a sanctuary. Isaiah and the remnant there in Judah with Isaiah. Isaiah is to have a different fear than their fear. They fear the northern enemies, Israel and Syria. But just as Isaiah is not to support the confederacy that the rest of Judah supported, so he is not to have the fear that they fear. He is not to fear Syria and Israel and their confederacy against Judah. He's not to fear them. Just as he is not to turn to Assyria for a confederacy, for deliverance. They, Judah, desire this unlawful alliance with confederacy with Assyria because they were afraid of Israel and Syria. But Isaiah must not fear with their fear. The people of God are to to have a very different fear than the fears of this world. The world is afraid at every turn. That's the news. If you watch the news, that's the news. They fear everything. Everything's the next biggest thing that's going to destroy something. That's the the GOP, the Republican Party as well. That's the people like uh, some of you might listen to, Charlie Kirk or Candace Owens, talk radio. It's everything's about fear. Fear of government. And everything you see in the political sphere of our nation on all sides, it's all about fear. It's all fears communicated, but not the fears that God's people should have. Despite the large faction of the covenant people of God in Judah here, professing believers joining in that fear. And just as in the church, a large amount of people in the church join in that fear of government or in the political, whatever political party you're a part of. And they have their fears. And lots of Christians, especially in the Republican Party, I guess, join in that fear. But we are not to have that fear. Not the fear of the world. They fear one another. They fear... And they're afraid of worldly events, afraid of the future. And because we see the news, we read about what's happening, because they're the ones who's writing the news and we're hearing from them, then we start to begin and we start beginning to fear ourselves, the same things. And God says, don't fear what they fear. Don't fear what they fear, friends. The Lord must be our fear. He must be our dread. It's Jehovah of whom we should stand in awe. When it says, verse 13, Sanctify the Lord of hosts Himself, and let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. We are to set apart the Lord in our thoughts. That's what sanctify means. Set apart the Lord in our thoughts, in our hearts. We are to think of Him as He truly is, as infinitely above all others. And Christ is on the throne above all the government, above our nation and all nations. And He's holy and He's majestic in all glory and power and authority over all things. He's infinitely above and distinct from all the false imaginary gods and 
of paganism, of the cults, and those are the many religions of the world, infinitely above all created beings and created things. Set the Lord apart in your thoughts, in your speech, as He's revealed to be infinitely and eternal God of all. 1 Peter 3 refers to our passage. And it says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Well, how are we going to be ready to give an answer to him that asketh? Right? How are we going to be able to do that? How are we, friends, not going to be stressed and nervous to the point that we say nothing? If we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, if we think rightly of God and, and have our confidence in, in Him, if we have a right view of God, we believe the truth concerning God, then we will not be afraid of men. Not be afraid of government. Not be afraid of nations. And we'll give an account of Him uh, who asks. And we'll give them a reason for the hope that is within us if we continue meditating upon the Lord and thinking on Him. But it's because we don't think rightly of God and we don't believe those right thoughts of God that we are often silent when we ought to speak. When we think rightly of God and do not, in our minds, bring Him down to the level of the gods of false religions, we don't bring Him down to the level of men and creation, in other words, when we, when we think and believe rightly of God, then we will be uh, strong against all other fears and the fears of this world. They that know God, Jehovah, will be strong. And so why are Christians timid and scared and fearful? They are so because they have not adequately thought upon God. Just like uh, a majority of Judah here in our passage. They have not adequately meditated upon God and then believed who, and then because not doing that, they should have, uh, they should have believed who He said He was and shown Himself to be in His Word, but they have not believed uh, who He is and what He said He is in His Word. They have not believed the truth of God and His promises. We see that. Uh, rampant throughout the church. They don't believe what God exactly says that He is in His Word. And they come up with figments of their imagination or idols. Is that you? And the Lord comes now and He says, well, make me, Jehovah, your fear. Jesus says in Matthew 10, and fear not them which kill the body, but are able to kill the soul, but rather fear Him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And this fear of the Lord is not a mere tormenting fear of terror, but it is that loving, reverential fear that delights in God. One theologian says of this fear of the Lord, he says it is a, a reverence for the divine being, an awareness and awareness of the divine person, and a regard for the divine will, which we find in God's Word. That's the fear of God that we need. If we have this loving, reverential awe 
standing in awe of God. We have this loving, reverential awe and fear of God. God as He is revealed to be, as He really is. Not the make-believe God of many in the church or false gods in the world, but the real God. And we shall not fear with the fears of the world. We will fear Him. And we will trust His plan and His providence. And so there's therefore a radically different worldview that the Christian must have than that of the world. Isaiah is to look... Therefore, because he has a different worldview, he's looking to the Lord. He, the Lord is his fear. Isaiah is to look for a different solution than what the world or Judah and King Ahaz are seeking. He is to look for a different fear. And there will come, therefore, a different outcome. Verse 14, it says, And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. For a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Those who sanctify the Lord God in their hearts, those who think of Him as He is revealed and believe that He is as He reveals Himself to be and confide in His promises and rest upon what He has said in His Word about Himself and what is true, He Himself will be a sanctuary to those who do that. That is, He will set Himself apart to be their refuge and their protector and their strong tower and their shield and their guardian and their salvation. So is the Lord sanctified in your hearts? Consider Psalm 91 with the many applications for our very day that you could probably think of and all the trouble and the worldly fears. It says there, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers and under His wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for this pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. And the psalm goes on. The world knows none of that. Nothing of that. Only those who have turned to Christ in faith and continue resting and trusting in the Lord can have that Lord that we just read about as their sanctuary. The world knows nothing of that. Not because the truth is not proclaimed. It is proclaimed. But because they cannot see it. They are depraved and can't see it. The people of God who have eyes to see they receive the Word of God like the, Thessalon- uh, the church of Thessalonica. The truth of God. They receive it. The people of God hide themselves in God as their refuge, as their strong tower, as their strength. In Christ, we have deliverance from guilt of our sin. And we have the everlasting arms around us. His providential care. His promises even. that, that In Romans 8, all things work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And the certainty of glory to come. He'll bring us there. This is to have the Lord as our sanctuary. And amidst apparent confusion and chaos in this world, all the noise 
all the conflicts of the world, we have the Lord Jesus Christ as our safety and help. And so we rest secure. He is our rock that we must go to and all our confusion and distresses that we have, we have Him as a rock who is higher than all things. And all the difficulties in this life, we have this invisible sanctuary as our confidence and hiding place. Psalm 32, it says, Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. We have the Lord of all heaven and earth and all the promises in Christ Jesus. This is our refuge in all things. And the world, the unbelieving, do not have a refuge. They have nothing like the Lord. Verse 14, it says again, And He shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Though Christ is made known to men and women as the rock of salvation, yet many stumble at Him and before Him. When He's preached, when people are called to turn alone to Him, they stumble over that. They are offended at Him. 1 Peter 2, referring to the verse before us, it says, Unto you therefore which believe He is precious. Right? And you go back to our verse. It says, And He shall be for a sanctuary. That is, to the believing, to those who are God's people. So, 1 Peter 2, again, Unto you therefore which believe He is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. They disobeyed the word when they heard it. They disobeyed the gospel. And yet they were appointed unto this stumbling, being offended, being disobedient. They were appointed unto that, the Lord through Peter says. And you ask, well, how did God appoint them to this disobedience and ruin? How is it disobedience then? God sovereignly commands friends, and yet sovereignly does not enable them to comply out of His grace. That's the sovereignty of God. His authority is not removed because of man's dependence upon His power and grace. Well, why can't they comply? Is it because of the Lord? No. They can't comply because they're disobedient, He says. Because of their sin. They're at fault. Man is at fault. The Lord through Peter says, whereunto also they were appointed. In 1 Corinthians 1, it says, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's not, it's not there speaking simply of the outward call of the Gospel that was addressed even to those who found Christ crucified for sins, a stumbling block and foolishness, even a rock of offense. It's speaking about the effectual calling of God 
The sovereign work of regeneration uh, in the heart working by the Spirit of God so that naturally depraved sinners, gospel-rejecting sinners, have their hearts renewed, made alive in the day of the Lord's power so that they're made willing and able to embrace Jesus Christ as He's freely offered in the Gospel. In our passage, those who are not thus called for them, the message comes from Isaiah. The Lord through Isaiah. The message of the Savior to them is verse 14, a jinn and a snare, as well as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. A jinn being a trap. And it goes there along with snare in which animals are caught. In verse 15, the effect is described. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken, be snared and be taken. The message of salvation in the case of those who are not renewed by the Holy Spirit in regeneration comes to them as a message of deliverance. It's the Gospel, it's good news, and yet left in the wickedness of their hearts, they are offended by that Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They end up with their hearts even more hardened with greater guilt before God. And so you consider, as we have previously in the previous weeks, the devils, demons, uh, that we considered recently, they are completely hostile toward God and the truth. And so though they believe the truth is true, they still hate it. And they make it... Now we can take that and make it much smaller and apply it to ourselves. Those who are still in their sins left to the wickedness of their own hearts, though deep down in their soul, we know and from Romans 1, they know the Gospel is true. They are so wicked, taking after their father the devil and his followers the demons, that they hate the Gospel and they hate the truth and they reject it and will not even acknowledge it as the truth, but as some made-up fairy tale. These then bring upon themselves having heard the free offer of the Gospel and rejecting it, hating it, and the hardness of their hearts, they bring upon themselves a great judgment and ruin. The Gospel itself is good, and it is good to those who by God's grace are enabled to receive it and do believe. But to all others whom God has not ordained unto eternal life, to whom are appointed unto disobedience, They resent that Gospel. They oppose Jesus Christ and the good news. They render themselves more guilty because on top of all their sins, they have this sin, that they heard the Gospel of Jesus Christ and rejected it. They heard of the salvation that is found in Christ alone and they rejected it. Matthew 21, And whosoever shall fall on this stone, Jesus, And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And so, friends, the believer, the Christian, true Christians are to have a radically different worldview than those of the world. A different worldview, a different solution, a different fear, and anticipates a different outcome than those who, are, who know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second point this evening, an important ministry 
an important ministry. Verse 16, it says, Bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples. This is much like what we see in the letter from Paul to the to Titus. Titus 1, it says, Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. And it goes on. What that verse means is that the Apostle Paul is the Apostle of Jesus Christ. He's sent by Jesus Christ, and therefore, through the preaching of the Gospel which he was sent to do, he is, as an Apostle, an instrument whereby the elect of God, those chosen in eternity past to unto salvation, are brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is to the acknowledgement of the truth, which leads to godliness. What was true of the Apostle Paul was also true of the prophet Isaiah. That is, again, that Paul is an instrument to bring about faith through the gospel, preaching it. The faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And thereby, those who believe acknowledge the truth, that it is true, and they love it. Same with the prophet Isaiah in verse 16. He says, bind up the testimony... Seal the law among my disciples. The testimony, the law, the instruction from God's Word that the Lord gave to the people through Isaiah would be sealed up. That is, He would be the instrument of it being received into the hearts of those who follow after Jehovah. He was to be the means, the instrument of the Word of God being sealed up in the hearts of the disciples of the Lord, those who truly believe, those who are taught by the law. And so Isaiah's duty was to preach the Word of God freely to the people of Judah without discrimination. To all in Judah, whether they were following King Ahaz or they were part of the remnant, all in Judah he was to preach too. The Word was not to be hidden from anyone, but the Word would be hidden from the hearts and minds of those who did not have the God-given sight and understanding through regeneration and faith. Remember chapter 6 and Isaiah's call to the ministry to be a prophet. He says, it says there, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. Who is he talking about? He's talking about all of Judah. Go and make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And so he's to preach and preach and preach until then. And here it is, there was a remnant according to the election of grace. And them the word would be received into their hearts. And so Isaiah was to be the instrument of the Lord in the bringing of the truth to this remnant that's talked about here in verse 16, my disciples, to this elect people by preaching it to all of Judah. The elect would hear it and they would follow the Lord. Though the truth was openly declared to all, yet to most of Judah, 
It was as if it was a closed book because their hearts were not renewed by the Spirit of God to hear and receive it. Acts 13, it says, But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. And then a few verses later, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life, believe. Jews and Gentiles heard the same thing. And it was the Gentiles who believed the Jews contradicted and rebelled. And so we must trace the effects of the gospel back to the Lord and His eternal purposes of election whereby He has chosen who shall be the heirs of salvation and that purpose coming to effect in time by the secret power of God renewing the hearts of those sinners whom God has eternally chosen to life everlasting. It's an important ministry. And then thirdly, a little remnant. A little remnant. Verse 17 and it says, And I will wait upon the Lord that hideth His face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for Him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given Me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. Here is the Messiah, Emmanuel, speaking. Verse 17 again, And I will wait upon the Lord that hideth His face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for Him. This is Christ awaiting the travail of His soul. A small band of disciples in Judah and often ever since, the little remaining people are remnant. But in the end, all the elect will be brought in. All those who are given to Christ by the Father shall come to Him and they shall not be cast out by Him. And this is speaking of Christ and His own people. The Messiah here identifies Himself that, with that little remaining people in Judah who truly feared the Lord and trusted in the promised Emmanuel from chapter 7. And they are a people with whom He is united. Hebrews 2, he quotes our passage of verse 18, For both He that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. You see verse 18, behold, it says, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me. There's what Hebrews 2 quoted, are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. It's quoting uh, as well Psalm 22, but also uh, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18 in our passage. I and the children whom the Lord hath given me. The context in Hebrews 2 is that so much has Christ committed Himself to the salvation of His people So much has the Son of Man determined to redeem His people that He became a man, that He suffered death, and in that respect He was made a little lower than the angels, that He tasted death. 
And so the argument from Hebrews 2 is, if Christ is so much superior to the angels, how, how is it that He died? The answer being, because Christ did not come to save fallen angels, but to save fallen men. And so He became a man, and as a man, He suffered death in His human nature as He bore the wrath of God. In the place of guilty sinners, in the place of His people. It's not because He is inferior to angels, but because He was God manifested in the flesh to redeem fallen men. He didn't become an angel, He became a man without ceasing to be God. And so we say then two distinct natures and one divine person. So the divine Redeemer suffered in His human nature. It was the sufferings of an infinite divine person, but the sufferings were in His human nature. God is blessed forever. God does not suffer, but a divine person suffered in His human nature. So that the children given to Him should be delivered from the wrath and from, and, and, and from judgment and have everlasting life. Christ says here, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me. I and the children. A little remnant in Isaiah's day. Not huge in this part of the world, even in our day. But ultimately a multitude which no man can number out of every kindred and tongue and people. And yet Christ and His people are a source of astonishment. Look again at verse 18. It was in Judah in Isaiah's day. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me, so Emmanuel and the children whom the Lord hath given me, the little remnant and God's people, us, are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. It is an astonishing thing. For signs and wonders, Christ, His people on earth, united to Him. This little remnant of believers in Judah, this holy seed which was the substance thereof, were a wonder, an astonishment, a derision. In other words, friends, Christ and His children were, that's the meaning here, in Isaiah. Christ and His children, the children of God, were gazed at as monsters and outlandish people. Pointed at in the streets. This little remnant completely opposed by the rest of Judah. They were scorned at. Who, at, who, who are these people who go after Isaiah and what he says? Who are opposed to the official policy of this confederacy. That's what they were saying. Who is Isaiah? And who is this little remnant of people who are going against the grain? Who do they think they are? Where do they get the nerve? But the one speaking, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel says, they are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. The Lord who gave the Scriptures to Judah the Lord who appointed Jerusalem at Mount, and Mount Zion and the temple and who manifested His presence there. This little remnant were His people. The rest of Judah who boasted in the temple of the Lord and the city of God, they lived there, they mocked the true people of God. And it was this little remnant who believed the Word and were against the confederacy with Assyria that 
that the king Ahaz upheld. This teaches us that we ought not to concern ourselves with being in the majority. If you're a faithful Christian, you'll often be found in the minority. Make your great concern first and foremost to make sure that you are in the faith, that you sanctify the Lord of hosts, Jehovah. Think rightly of Him always. You need to be not be afraid like the fear of the world, but have that fear of the Lord, that knowing that He is your sanctuary. He will care for His people, us. Uh, he will own us as His. And let the world think what it likes. Let the covenant people who rebel think what it likes. Let the Lord be your fear. That's what we're called to here. And then you will have nothing else to fear. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean upon His Word. Not your own understanding. Don't seek to take His Word and mangle it and make it fit with whatever you want or what you desire. Come to Him, defend His truth. Rest upon His promises of mercy and forgiveness in Christ, His providential care. For He says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what the Lord teaches us to believe and say and know. And if the Lord is our light and saving strength, then of whom shall we be afraid? It's nothing. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that You have a remnant of Your people on the earth, and You always will, until Christ comes again. We pray that You would make that remnant a great multitude at Your timing, that Your will would be done. And Father, in our hearts, as we see all these things going on in the world, Father, make us to not fear like they fear, to not think like the world thinks, to not come up with solutions like the world comes up with solutions and even agree with them. But Father, may You be our fear. May You be our dread. May the solutions that we take as our solutions, what we believe is to be right, that we would take it from Your Word alone, because we know that Your Word is perfect. And just as King Ahaz and the majority of Judah took a confederacy with Assyria, it would have been, and it was, to their downfall. Father, may we turn to You. Because when we turn to You, there is no downfall. There is only victory. And... uh, And so bring that victory about, even in our hearts, that Your Spirit would be poured out, that we would turn unto You in each circumstance, in each dark providence, in each thing that we are tempted to fear in this world, that we would turn to You and that You would be our fear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.